Health Research Center series on anti-racist qualitative health research, and we look at whether, how, and to what extent qualitative health research can contribute towards anti-racism and decolonization. And in these past few episodes, we've taken a journey through qualitative research, looking at the questioning, the theories, the process, the results. And now we're looking at, okay, well, how do we actually make a difference? So today we're very lucky to have Mary with us. Mary, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Sahil. Um, I'm Mary. I am the policy manager at the National Survivor User Network. We're a membership organisation for individuals with lived experience of mental ill health, distress and trauma and for user-led groups. And I lead on work at the intersection of racial justice, migrant justice and mental health, and also looking at the social determinants of mental ill health. Great. So could you explain a bit about that intersection and also how um, issues of racism and structural racism might link into issues of migrant justice and also mental health justice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when it comes to, I can, I'll start with mental health and racial justice. Um, it's been a real turn over the last few years and a real focus on expanding approaches to racial justice in the mental health sector, especially since sort of global events, the, the murder of George, George Floyd, there, there's been this shift towards anti-racist strategy in mental health and understanding the links. And there's all this, this data and statistics that are thrown around, around the experiences of certain racialized groups, often um, most acutely black groups, and how they are on the sharp end of the mental health system. But what's often missing is including racialized people who are considered migrants, or especially those who don't have status in, an, in, in this conversation around racial justice. So you'll have, say, a manifesto or a strategy that's on the mental health of a particular racialized group who are acutely impacted. And there will be no mention of people who belong to that ethnic group, for example, but have a status, which means that they are made invisible um, deliberately by sort of the institutions and systems they're in and forced to live these kind of clandestine lives. And there's this replication of that in the mental health sector as well. Because it's such a sensitive political issue, people don't really want to speak on it. And so the easy way to speak on racial justice and mental health is to exclude migrants. And it's just an example of, of the way in which racism continues to function. And impacts the people who are uh, marginalised, really vulnerable, and really easy to exclude in mainstream conversations because there's so so little like representation or so little space to to voice experiences. Great, thank you. And so, in the context now of qualitative health research, I mean, what's the current state of play in terms of how qualitative health research links in with calls for migrant justice? and racial justice. Are there really good things happening? Does a lot need to be done yet to make qualitative health research actually impactful? Yeah, so um, I think just to start off, I'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who isn't a researcher, who's outside academia, but who interacts with some of these sort of materials and practices through my work in policy. And I think it's it's quite interesting uh, sort of thinking about where we are in terms of, you know, in the past, there have been lots of conversations around hard to reach groups and framing this framing of problematizing certain groups' experiences or, or self-understanding as being sort of outside of, of norms of, say, mental health. And there's been, it feels like there's been this kind of shift, this sort of like greater focus on insider understandings or on letting people kind of name their experiences and name name their own kind of concepts and understandings instead of it just being imposed by this sort of external model. But I think where it kind of 
when it comes to mental health, it feels like there's there's this fundamental underlying concept, which is this othering or this outsiderness of these experiences. And when they're brought in as sort of like a case study or an example, there's still this kind of sense of this this relativity and this this there's the legitimate kind of normative stuff, and then there's this um these other kind of external experiences. And I think there's something there around scale as well. And um, when, you know, you're talking about a potentially really small population of people, there's variation that's lost in that context. And for example, there's been developments in, in the last few years over on the Mental Health Act and developing like plan for community mental health and various other kind of policy around the Mental Health Act. And, you know, one thing that we see is uh, research being commissioned, qualitative research, looking at people's experiences where people are broken down into groups like it'll be older people, queer people, black people and very much this kind of categorization that is external and, and really doesn't look at the ways in which people have intersecting identities yeah cheers thank you so why does it make a difference if you can continue that thought further like why does it make a difference for people to be able to name their own understandings and have their intersections acknowledged i think it it's a number of things there's something there around agency and so, you know, often in mental health, we talk about experts by experience, for example, and this, there's this framing and this idea of you are the expert on your life and you have an understanding. And there's this kind of sense of trying to give people back some of the legitimacy that's been taken away or has, there's been this framing where it's um, you're being told about yourself being a, an expert by experience or being in the space where you're a survivor researcher is taking back some of that, those processes of, of delegitimization through traditional like fields and things. I think these categories are treated like things that are fundamental or based in fact, but what they are actually based in is outside perspectives. And, and there's, there's this real kind of, I guess, disparity in terms of who gets to decide what their categories are that they belong to and what their labels are and who is labelled. And I think especially coming from a context of talking about migration and people who have been through transitions and journeys where you can experience loss of identity and loss of place and home and kind of connection, to then be placed in a context where um, you're further labelled and further treated as being alienated from, from having an understanding of yourself. I think that's another form of sort of like, you know, harm and these picture of violence that we see that and possibly trauma that is, that is happening across journeys and transitions. And it's also, it's also about the ways in which these categorizations can be really neat and useful for research if you're able to break people up into discrete groups. But it's so often not reflective of people's experiences and means that they might have to pick an identifier or a marker or be labeled with a primary marker that might not actually speak to the depth or richness of their experience. And I think there's this sense of comp wanting to complicate the picture, which if you're trying to sort of present a narrative in terms of research, it's maybe something that people shy away from sometimes or is, or is a bit daunting, this idea of complicating the picture you have. And how does that affect sort of the impact of research? So, okay, if you use these categories and you don't necessarily come up with a sort of nuanced, intersectional, complicated picture, I can see how maybe a simple message is maybe better for impact. So like, what's the in real life, like how does that categorization not make a difference or not help things? Yeah, I guess it depends on the site of impact, right? So it's um, thinking about mental health care and the ways in which there's been lots of conversations around cultural competency and the the patient carer race equality framework and these, and these pieces of work that are coming out around racial justice and mental health. And I think the impact is that we're ending up with this kind of abstraction and this idea of 
this is how you treat X group of people and this idea of homogeneity in those groups. And what's lost there is that people might end up being placed in sort of categories or, or, or different kind of contexts that don't actually speak to their experiences at all. But it's this is simplifier. So if someone who's external to, to sort of that lived experience, it, it makes your life easier. And it's, I think there's, there's something there around wanting to, to think about people's like humanity and letting someone be a whole person instead of this. What tends to happen is you get boxed into different labels. And I think people get lost. People get lost in these, in these spaces where they are treated as sort of, yeah, I guess like objects of research or as fitting a pattern. And it's this thing of um, pattern identification could be really satisfying. But the reality is, is that there's a potential of creating this sort of this model of what a person from a certain group is like, or like what their experience is. And that model is then used to, to, to treat, you're treating the model, you're not treating the person. And there's also a sense of, I think, lots of people do have an understanding, who is seen as being alienated from things like mental health or having cultural and social stigma, do have sort of deep understandings of uh, like experiences and their needs that might have a different framing. And I think there's something there around, it feels a bit lazy, almost like looking to these really simplistic kind of forms of understanding instead of thinking about what are the ways in which you can experience, you can maybe step into someone's world and experience it from their perspective or see some kind of like maybe some kind of alignment between the kind of internal and external world. Cool. Thank you. And you mentioned a couple of ongoing research projects. So how do you feel about them? Can you give us a bit more detail about, um, you said pieces of work around racial justice and mental health. So yeah, what's, what's happening there and what would you like to see? Sure. Um, yeah. So I think I've, I've sort of come across some good and some, uh, not so good examples lately or some examples of, of pieces. Of, and so I think there are examples of work where it's very much, you know, so as an organization, we are sometimes asked to, to, to take on pieces of research for people who are interested to be part of research bids, sort of as many, as many sort of lived experience mental health organizations are. And one thing that I do see is this pattern of this categorization that doesn't speak to people's experiences and excludes kind of deeper understanding and, and sort of more complex pictures. And But I guess there's something there around the purpose of the research. And I think sometimes the purpose of research, especially when it feeds into mental health policy, is not actually to gain deeper understanding and is driven by a desire to show that work has been done or there's been you know, it's, it's almost like the research supports the sort of foregone conclusions and not the other way around. And so that's something that I think that's something that happens and, and, and sort of people get caught in. I think coming from a perspective on sort of working in and around lived experience, there is often work that appears to be co-produced or has this label of being co-produced, but co-production is really, really complex. And actually often it's, it's, it's seen as a legitimizing factor of adding and, and something that's additive instead of something that's sort of fundamental in the core of a, of a project. Um, but I've also, um, I've seen some really, really interesting projects. And I think one example that I recently came across is by a researcher called Umit Seton, who is doing or has been doing research for many years with the Alevi community in London, looking at experiences of suicide in the second generation. And that was a really, really interesting example of someone who has connection to a community unpacking over many years this kind of experience and, and sort of pulling out these factors, giving colour to an experience that in a broader project could be sort of framed as research on racialized young men dying by suicide in a certain area or something. And I think what would really be lost there is this kind of understanding of the specific cultural context. I think specificity is something that really gets lost because especially when you belong to a um, to a much more smaller group, 
there's this framing of you might be seen as you're you belong to a, a Muslim community, but the experience of being in that community might not it might be very specific of I belong to a community of this demographic, this ethnicity, and this kind of um practice. And it's not um, but it's that thing of the external understanding and the and the internal experience being different and the and the practices of labeling. And I think there are these processes of sort of alienation. So especially for people who racialized people who are have been through the migration system or are going through the migration system. I think there's something for me there around the ways in which you become lumped into a group and you lose that. There's that sense of recreating um, processes of identity loss. And there's something so rich, um, but it feels quite rare to be able to be part of something that's specific. If you're taking part in research or your research subject, you can contribute to the framing and understanding of that specificity. Great, thanks. And really glad you mentioned co-production. We had a episode on co-production last series. And I learned that there were four different definitions of co-production and it's really quite complicated. So I would really encourage listeners to listen to that. Okay, so specificity is important in making impact, making policy impact. But hopefully a lot of qualitative health researchers are thinking about specificity. They are thinking about people's real individual experiences. And I think people still struggle a lot to feel like they're making any sort of policy impact, especially in migrant justice. But what's missing there? Like, what do people need to then put on and then do once they have their very specific intersectional and nuanced findings? So I guess the first thing about policy impact is that it's an incredibly hostile context and just because something is a good piece of research and it shows it shows really clearly sort of need and the ways in which systems are, are producing harm and, and and sort of and what's going on doesn't mean that there will ever be any or sort of in the current context there will be any resourcing or any interest and I think it's starting from the perspective of a lot of the harms that we see are deliberately generated and are part of the, the system is sort of functioning as expected and there's something there around you know, for us as an organization, when we consider this, we think a lot of also about what the different sites of change are. And there's the sort of like high level stuff, which is really, really important, like movements like Kill the Bill and movements to resist sort of a lot of the other legislation, like nationality and borders that's been happening sort of in recent times. But there's also something around um, a lot of our members are user led groups and thinking about what's the impact on a grassroots level and what can the impacts be that people can take back to their communities and can contribute to their sort of like their own knowledge building and their own understanding, their own activism and campaigning in those contexts, which might not necessarily be very public facing or be very visible, which is often also related to safety and and because it's not for everyone's consumption. And yeah, there's definitely something there around thinking around the level of the impact and who it's actually for and who it's with as well. What do you mean who it's with? I think there's a the difference between being done to or done for and done with. And um, when looking at impacts on a grassroots or user-led level and, and thinking about what can I take back to people or what can I kind of, what can we share and what are the sort of positive kind of outcomes on that level? I think there's something there around, yeah, I guess it comes back to that question of like collaboration, co-production. I think there's something around producing research to have a policy impact, but not necessarily kind of involving or amplifying the voices of people who are affected. And and it's it's often, it can be in really small ways as well, like producing resources that aren't accessible to people in different languages, producing resources that are meant to support people that don't actually talk to any of the people who are meant to use it and that kind of stuff. And there is sort of like, I think there's a lot of kind of, there's a lot of unpacking that needs to be done around the ways in which loads of the norms and processes are kind of by default 
on behalf of people or kind of have this kind of paternalism or yeah can you tell me a bit more about the norms and processes that mean that research and the findings are always just on behalf of people and not necessarily with people sure yeah i think it's that classic thing of like you know and also like you know like you said a lot of people are looking and thinking around doing this stuff differently but the kind of default from you know an outsider's outsider's perspective seems to be that there is a group of interest or a phenomenon that you know a pattern that is you know people want to study and there is a sense of kind of um going through this cycle where you're generating information, you have research subjects or sources of data that you're using and producing your conclusions and kind of then trying to influence policy. But I think there's something there around, and maybe this is a bit of a cynical perspective, but I think there can be something there around doing research for researchers' sake or doing research to produce that kind of policy influencing. And there's something there, I think, for me around like relationships and what are the relationships that are part of the research and I think there is quite a lot of research in which there is there are no relationships built and part of that or like no meaningful relationships and part of that is because this stuff takes time and in my work as sort of my colleagues also we all like work on relationship building over time but it's very much a long-term process and not something that can necessarily be rushed or kind of be fit, neatly fit into the lifespan of a project okay cool so some of the i guess institutional ways that research is done from the university perspective might make it difficult for people to build relationships with the people they're hopefully working with. Does it make it difficult to have both levels of impact you've talked about? Like you talked about sort of broader policy impact, if not on a national level, then maybe on a local government level. And then you also talked about this more grassroots level impact. Is is, is that sort of the chain of uh, causation? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would necessarily like frame it as a chain of causation, but I guess I think there's definitely something there around, you know, if your if your desired impact isn't to genuine isn't to genuinely sort of interact with and give something to the the people or the community that you're that you're kind of taking something from for your research. I think that's there's often the case that it then doesn't produce something that's of value that you can give back. And I think it's the idea, this like classic idea of extraction and the ways in which extraction is really normal and a really standard kind of mode of practice. And it's justified because it's sort of like, well, it's really important to have this information in the first place. And it's really important to do this research. But I think one question that we sometimes come back to is sort of, is it really important to do to do this research if it's done in a way that is that is extractive? And it's the thing of, are you the only person who can do this research? Is there someone else who could do it better? Is there a way in which it could be sort of planned in a more sort of long, long-term kind of sustained, sustainable way? I guess it's that thing of, um, it often feels like that research is fundamentally important, but it's, I think for me, it's the context is, is, the, is the fundamental thing and the embeddedness. And if it's not there, then that feels like it could, even if findings are really interesting, it feels like that's um, something that takes away from the from the value of, of, the, of the yeah of the research great thanks yeah so i guess in a way you're saying that and please correct me if i'm wrong you're saying that when we think about policy impact or impact from the perspective of a researcher it shouldn't be like this one-off thing where you have the findings and then it happens somehow it's part of a long-term relationship building process and so there should be lots of little stages uh where somehow the research makes a difference i, I don't know if you've got a, a, a concrete example we can hook this on where you might have seen it done all right or not so well or even just things you you want to see done differently 
Yeah. So I think an example of um, some of the ways of working that can be a bit different. And again, this is not necessarily sort of, it's not embedded in kind of a research environment. It's embedded more in this in this kind of, you know, we're coming from this like charity sector context. It's There are lots of points of sort of contact, but it's still different. And I think one of the ways of working is um, one of my colleagues is leading a sort of long-term like exploratory project on safeguarding. And it's around kind of disrupting and addressing and naming some of the ways in which practices of safeguarding can actually generate harm, especially to racialized groups, especially to people who experience like different forms of marginalization because of like gender, sexuality, growing up in the care system. And this is kind of a long-term project that has a research aim, which is to elucidate and identify what good safeguarding practices look like. But the way in which that happens is this, you could call it a community of practice. It's not actually called that, but it's, that's the kind of model that people might sort of be familiar with. But it's a collective of people who get together over and have been getting together over a sustained period of time just to share what's happening in their organizations and include sort of grassroots and user-led organizations and some other charities. I think there's a sense there of space and there's a sense of not having a foregone conclusion or not having sure there are ideas about what it might look like but that isn't it's not following this like rigid path and I think there's something there around that research could also model which is starting from a place of yeah maybe there are people who work like this but starting from a place of connection and practice and creating that spaciousness and then kind of going on to generate findings and things that are of interest but also doing it in a way where it speaks to it speaks to the people who have been on the journey but obviously there are loads of questions and issues around this so one of the issues around doing work that is co-produced or doing work that is in partnership is obviously resourcing and funding especially when lots of groups are really precarious and often direct their kind of limited resources towards service provision and, and looking after and supporting community members and so there can be like ethical questions around taking away people's like time and resources to feed into research questions and projects but I also think there's a question of sort of who does it serve? And I think the safeguarding one is a really nice example of where that's something that is a really impactful thing in the day to day of people's like practice. It's something people do, whether they consciously think about it or not, every day in these contexts. There's a sense of taking people's time, yes, and but but building something together and giving something back that will influence how they work sort of going forward. Cool. And that piece of work presumably is, is done by someone who works for your organization anyway and is really familiar with issues people are going through so it kind of they're kind of like almost an embedded researcher or facilitator or they're like you know is is that how qualitative health research can also make a bit more of a difference if it comes from organizations and campaigners yeah i don't want to sort of create this image of there being sort of this one solution there's this ideal model or way of working because there isn't but i think there is definitely something around around embeddedness and you know there are lots of people who who do research and also have experience of working with organizations on the ground and have that kind of connection i think that connection is really really important but it's when there is kind of a sense of um when you have kind of research that's divorced from its context i think that's when it's sort of like even if it's sort of qualitative and there is richness there it feels like there's something fundamental there's that kind of gap that is maybe that embeddedness and and that kind of connection which also needs trust and there's also the sense of like even if you're embedded people will share with you what they share with you and that kind of that there are there are so many factors there that that influence where what, what your outcomes will look like and yeah oh thank you yeah there's definitely no no one size fits all that's um definitely useful to emphasize so getting towards the end of things i kind of had a couple more questions for you i want to end with a maybe a, a slightly difficult one um so thinking about embeddedness thinking about what you mentioned before about 
are you the right person to do the research in terms of like, you know, if you do it, will it have the biggest change or maybe someone else does it? So in the context of our anti-racist series, there'll be um, a lot of uh, white researchers listening and being like, okay, well, can I do impactful anti-racist research? So do you think that white researchers can do good anti-racist research? If so, what does it look like? Yeah, I think there's something there around positionality of like, you can do really impactful anti-racist research. But also, so there's, so I think the starting point for me is that often, even if you're a researcher who has a connection to the community you're researching, it's often imperfect. And there's often not this kind of fit where you're an exact mirror of your participants, but also because the participants, you know, or like your, the people you're working with aren't, are not going to be kind of all coming from the same perspective anyway. So I think it's kind of, that also needs a kind of interrogation of like positionality and an understanding of where you're coming from. And I think that's kind of the fundamental thing is thinking about what is your positionality? How do people relate to you? How do people see you? You know, I can imagine in some contexts that um, white researchers are maybe afforded more legitimacy in certain environments or seen as more kind of like belonging to the academy or more trustworthy or whatever because of, I guess, sort of internalized racism and things like that. But I think there's also that something that I do sometimes hear is this idea of like, I'm going to use my whiteness or my privilege to help others or to push forward this agenda. And sure, that's like a nice sentiment. But I think what underlies that is this idea that you're not getting something out of it yourself and you're not kind of benefiting from this interaction and this position that you have. And I think there's something there around genuinely wanting to work in solidarity and not just kind of wanting to see, um, I think that kind of that, that line kind of extends into ideas of like white saviorism, which can be quite subtle and can be quite quiet actually in the, um, in sort of in interactions and how people understand their research and people might be, but it's, it's that question of solidarity and, and are you doing things with people or for people or to people and, and not necessarily, yeah, and understanding that you're not the only person who can do it from this position or you're not the only person who's able to do this research, but you're afforded this position and there are reasons why, but that should also generate further questions of sort of why am I in the position I'm in and, and who can I do this work with or who can I kind of, um, who can I build a relationship with? How can I build trust? And there are people, so um, talking to someone a while ago who's leading a refugee youth project in, in London. She's just joined as a programme manager, I think. And she's white, but she's really, really embedded in that community and has historically had for many years relationships and people know who she is and people will be like, you know, and she, she would describe it as, oh, well, someone would meet me and they'd be like, oh yeah, my cousin, my cousin told me they met you here or whatever. And it's that sense of kind of being different, but not being an outsider in that sense of still having that kind of like whiteness doesn't preclude you from, from having deep, meaningful connectedness and relationships and an interest in the long-term kind of experiences and well-being of the communities that you're working with beyond your research project or beyond your grant and, and the funding that you have. That's a incredibly great answer to a very, very difficult question. So I appreciate that. Just a quick thing to pick up on with what you, you mentioned, um, that if you were a white researcher, maybe you have more legitimacy and trust, uh, in the academy. So if you come up with some sort of, you know, anti-racist finding about, let's say there's racism in universities. I mean, there is, but let's, let's, let's say that this finding showed that and then, um, you know, maybe they would, you know, the university hierarchy would listen more to a white researcher. Even if that has an impact, doesn't that also entrench um, white privilege still? I, I find it a very tricky thing to think through. I don't know what you think about it. 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think actually one of the things that kind of I was thinking about was if I was sort of doing research with the community that I'm from and how I would be seen versus how uh, a white, a person who's viewed as sort of a white scholar or sort of uh, would be seen. And I think there is, yeah, I think there's also something there from both ends of seeing this relationship between, you know, it's obviously it's really variable, but I can really picture that, 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 that happening on both ends, that idea of like legitimacy and greater legitimacy being afforded. And there's something there for me around care in the work as well. And and it's it's really tricky, right, when you're talking about people's kind of careers and their livelihoods and their incomes. And it's ultimately like naming what's happening, standing back when there's someone else who could step forward, recognising, yeah, recognising practices that that benefit you and, and disadvantage others. And but it's, it's a really tricky one, right? Because it's this sort of thing of like, again, it comes to that angle of people who are sort of putting forward that kind of use your privilege angle, put someone on your grant proposal and kind of work in collaboration. And but actually, there's something fundamentally about actually breaking down those systems. And there's something about academia that is fundamentally linked to this kind of like privilege and this sort of privileging of certain voices and types of knowledge. And I think it's thinking about the ways in which you're fundamentally part of like this unequal hierarchy of evidence when you're in the institution. And obviously, like, yeah, coming from the charity sector, that also exists, that kind of there's always, even when working with people, there's always an imbalance. And I think there's something about not kidding ourselves around what's actually happening or what people are able to do in those contexts. And that there's there's something there around like dismantling and, and thinking about the thinking about the way you work and the practices and how do those practices contribute or sort of benefit you if you're a white researcher. And thinking about, yeah, what are the what are the ways of of reimagining practice and reimagining practice in a way that other voices who've been historically silenced and invisibilized are centered, which is a, a long-term process and commitment, right? It's not like it's not something that can be reimagined sort of from one project to the next, I guess. Thank you. Much appreciated. And that that was uh oh yeah, just before we leave, do you have any resources that people could go to to learn more about the work you guys are doing, to learn more about good, impactful qualitative health research? Yeah, sure. I'd actually um like to shout out and share our so Enzon hosted a project called Synergy, which is a project looking at racial justice and mental health. And we've actually just launched our grants program that is supporting groups who are doing campaigning work around around racial justice and mental health at grassroots and user-led groups. Um so I guess if we can yeah share share a link to that. But also um yeah, please do have a look at our website and And yeah, that's um that's it for me. Thank you so much, Mary. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks also to our listeners. We're coming to the end of our series on anti-racist qualitative health research. The next series is going to look at qualitative health ethics. So I really hope you can join us for that.